0: As we begin the book of Esther, we're going to be spending the next several weeks in this book. I've got a question as we start. Raise your hand if you know the name of what I'm fixing to tell you. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Raise your hand if you know what that's called. Ooh, we got a bunch. Okay, we got some. Okay, there was some hesitancy there. Okay, Pythagorean Theorem. You remember Pythagorean theorem? Now that's geometry, right? Not algebra. That's geometry. Okay. So Pythagorean theorem, what does that have to do with Esther? I will tell you in a moment. Now let's move from our math-minded people to our artistic and our more creative side of people. Have you heard of Oedipus Rex or Sophocles who wrote Oedipus Rex, a, a phenomenally famous Greek play? I didn't know what in the world it was i had to look it up it seems incredible i hope someone would remake that movie sounds great okay one more question one more question how many of you have heard of socrates and the socratic method or socratic dialogue see what's happening in athens greece at the exact same time here we go we're tying it all in together when all of that is happening in greece So are the events of the book of Esther. Absolutely amazing history. It's the same time period of what's going on in Athens when Pythagoras is making the Pythagorean theorem, when Socrates is coming up with uh, the way that much of our modern world is still run, and when Sophocles is pinning the play Oedipus Rex. How awesome is it that just on a different part of the world. All of that is going on at the same time that the events that take place that make the book of Esther are taking place. There is a phenomenal Bible scholar. Her name is Karen Jobes, and I'm using one of our—one of the commentaries I'm using to study for this sermon series is written by her, and I love what she says about the book of Esther. She says, While things that would change the modern world 2,000 years later are taking place in Athens, no one's paying attention to the eternity-changing events that are taking place in Persia with Esther. And she makes the note that so many times the greatest eternal significance and the greatest eternity-changing decisions take place without any pomp or without any status— And so we're able to embrace in the mundane of the day-to-day life, knowing that it's oftentimes in the unobscure or the obscure things of life where God is creating massive eternity, changing significance. Now that's a little bit about the time period of Esther and what's going on in that. What do we know about the author? Well, we don't know exactly who the author was, but... We have some good reason to believe that this is a very historically accurate, factual book. And one, because the church saw fit to put it into the canon, K-A- C-A-N-O-N, not like a boom canon. But a canon, it's a complete work of all the books of the Bible is referred to as the canon of Scripture. It's been put into there so, so church, we can trust that this book was inspired by God... And was written for our edification for us to know God better and to trust God more. It's really neat. One of the main characters that we'll see in the book of Esther is a king named King Ahasuerus. Or let me go back to the author, sorry. What we do know is that it was very likely a Jew that lived in Persia during the time of these events. It could have been Mordecai, which is the cousin of Queen Esther, who are the two main characters of the book of Esther. It could have been one of them, but either way, we do know that it was a Jew writing who saw these things take place in Persia. Now, this is what my favorite part. I watched a movie in, in sermon preparation for this sermon series, okay? You will be introduced quickly to King Ahasuerus, okay? Now, I'm going to just admit some Americanizing there. It is King Ahasuerus that we're supposed to say, but Ahasuerus is hard enough, and so we're not going to go full Hebrew there, okay? So Ahasuerus is how, you, or how we will be pronouncing this king's name. Now, none of us have ever heard of King Ahasuerus. This is King Xerxes. If you've watched the movie 300, King Xerxes Who faces Leonidas this was the movie that I watched I can't endorse it from the pulpit it is quite violent and has some inappropriate scenes in it but if you fast-forward and you love violence it's a great movie so but King Xerxes this is the king in the book of Esther this was a, a Persian that had an army that in 300 they say shook the ground when it moved we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I just wanted to kind of set the stage for you. This is all going on while in Athens, Greece, you have Socrates, Sophocles, and Pythagoras. All of these huge historical names. And over in the Persian Empire, you have King Xerxes with the largest army known in history at that time. And he was wanting to fight against the Greeks and take over Greece. And so this is. This is the setting. This is when it's based in history. And what's really cool, there's a, a Greek historian named Herodotus. And after that, the Persians were defeated by the Greeks, because they don't win, <laughs> after they were defeated by the Greeks, Herodotus, a Greek historian, writes a book called The History of the Persian Wars. I don't know if that's exactly what, but it's what it's about. And he writes that 25 years after King Hashuarus dies. Very recent after the events took place. And so we have a ton of historical information about the book of Esther. And what's really, really awesome is something that we've already known to be true. God is trustworthy. You can count on his word as fact with the old adage, you can take that to the bank. Now, if you are Diving into some historical arguments about the book of Esther, they will tell you that there are many historical inaccuracies. Though they are not historical inaccuracies, they may be poetic freedom. This is a narrative book written to account a historical event, but it is written by a poetic author who interlaces humor and irony into the story. And so they may say, well, in the the Persian history books, there was never a queen named Esther— Okay, Karen Jobs points out phenomenal arguments for all of these things that people would say are inaccuracies. One, Darius had seven wives, I believe. This was Xerxes' father. They only wrote down the name of two. Why? Because only two bore children for him. They didn't care about the other five because they have no line to the throne. And so it may be very possible that Esther never had a child with Queen Xerxes, and therefore her name was not written down in Persian history. Could also be that her name Esther sounds very much like the Persian word Ishtar, which means beautiful and lovely. And so perhaps the reason that her name was never written down is because the poem or the poetic license of the author called her Queen Beautiful, Queen Lovely. And so there are some awesome historical realities that we get to know that there were different people writing about this history all at the same time that God was inspiring a Jew to write this book for us today, for our edification. And what's amazing is that, again, even with all of the harshest critiques, there's only a few things that they would say are historical inaccuracies, and Karen Jobes, in her commentary, quickly refutes all of those easily. So, church, we stand before you today, and I can say to you, Thus saith the Lord, this is His word. And I'm looking forward to diving into this word with you over the next several weeks. And so we've kind of talked about um, the time period. We've talked about the author. We've talked about its historical accuracy. So what is the book of Esther? Let me give you trying a three-sentence summary before we jump in to chapter one. Queen Esther, the, the book of Esther, details the account of a fight between gentiles and jews one where the jewish people faced the threat of genocide and it's by god's promise and god's providence and by god's protection that the jews are not exterminated in this time period but rather continue on victoriously why because god made a promise many, 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 many years prior that our Savior would come from the Jewish people. And so if Esther loses, and if this genocide takes place, we lose our Savior, who is then never born from the line of Judah. What we will see throughout this is what we've called the title of the sermon, that God is sovereign. God is in control, and God will powerfully protect His promises for us to know Him and to be redeemed by Him. So, turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, we're going to be working through this. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles, I want to tell you this book is a narrative. I've said that already, but what does that mean? It means... It's a a different genre. So some of you like hard rock, some of you like country, some of you like gospel, some of you like rap, whatever it is, those are different genres of music. And throughout the Bible, God uses the human authors and their skills and their abilities and their cultures. As He's inspiring, there He's also employing their skills. And so one thing about the book of Esther is that it's written in the narrative genre. And the way that we need to interpret narrative is that we need to let the scenes of the story, or let the scenes that we're reading move along the story. So what you'll see is that though that we have different chapter markings throughout here, there will be times where maybe I preach two chapters in one Sunday. It's not because I just am a glutton for punishment and wanna preach two chapters, it's that the, the book was inspired prior before ever chapter breaks were put in. And so there's a story that is working through, and so we're going to handle this book story by story. Now, some chapters do span three, or some stories do span three chapters, and therefore, for time's sake, I will have to say, come back next week, children, as we tune in for episode two, right? And so, but what we're going to do is we are going to read this book as a historical narrative with poetic freedom to get us to the understanding of what this author is going for. See if you read through this and you're just looking for points you're going to miss it. So as, as we get prepared to hear the Word of God what I want us to do is I want you to imagine you're sitting down maybe at a campfire with your family and friends, maybe you're sitting down with your grandfather as he tells you stories of his past. Don't try and take every single sentence as a point to learn from. Listen to the story. And as the story moves, that's where we'll see the author wants us to pay attention. And so read with me now as we begin reading with the first scene in chapter 1, which will take us from verses 1 through 9. Read with me. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush, In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days." At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble on marble columns, gold and silver couches were arranged on mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother-of-pearl, and precious stones. Verse 7, Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, with each with its different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. And scene. We come now, the author has presented us with scene one. And what I believe the author is wanting us to note right here is that King Ahasuerus has unlimited power and wealth. King Ahasuerus has unlimited wealth and power beyond measure. Well, why do I say that? Well, let's start with it It says these events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, which is awesome because that's how many other historical narratives in the Bible begin. It was in these days that blank. And so the author is beginning out with saying, these events took place. Again, fighting for the historical accurate, sorry, historicity is the word I was trying to say, but I didn't want to say hysterectomy. Historicity, okay? The historical validation of this book starts with the author saying, this is what took place. Now, what took place? It was Ahasuerus who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. If you are geographically inept like me, you need pictures. Mike, hit that first picture for us. Now, bring your binoculars because these are really small, but let me demonstrate for you in Exhibit A, okay? He said he was writing from Susa, which is going to be modern-day Iran. The redneck way is Iran, okay? This is India, okay? It spans all of this, okay? He's somewhere around in here. It goes all the way up into, well, this is Macedonia. This is Greece over here. This is Athens, okay? I'm pretty sure, so I'm hoping you can see this. But, and it spans down. You have all of Saudi Arabia, and then you have over here, Egypt, all the way down into the South Sudan of Africa. That's a lot of property. Hit that next picture for us, Mike. This is Google Maps image from today. Here is India right here. Okay, so you have Pakistan, Afghanistan, all these stands up here. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Israel, Egypt, Eritrea. Favorite word in all of names, Djibouti. All the way down into Ethiopia, Yemen, Amman, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, all of this. In modern day government, it is about 13 to to 15 different distinct countries this one man ruled. The author wants you to know this dude's got power. One of the historical inaccuracies, quote unquote, they say is that There's no Persian rule, or there's no Persian history book that says he had 127 provinces, 15 to 20 at most. Well, what they were counting were what they were called satrapies, and he would put a satrap over each of those. Now, Jerusalem and Judah was not a satrapy, but it was very much so its own nation with its own language and its own government. And so what we're likely seeing is that there were many of these provinces set up and the Persians may have said 10 or 15, but because the author's intended meaning is for us to grasp the vast expanse of King Ahasuerus' power, they counted it in the smallest number possible. I find myself doing that when I'm reporting back to our partner churches. Say, so I don't want to tell them how many people we baptized this month. Over the course of two years, 28 people, right? So sometimes you just want them to see the higher number. just It's called reality, okay? You might be judging me, but that's all right. Don understands. He's over there. He's helped uh, communicate for church plants. And so he starts out of the gates by saying, King Ahasuerus has unlimited resources and power beyond measure. He continues on. You want to know how? This is how we know. He held a feast in the third year of his reign, and what he did is he invited every single government official, every single person that was seated over one of those satrapies, one of those provinces. He brings all of them to his palace in Susa, and he has a feast. Now... If you're this king, we're not talking about rice and beans. We're talking feast. And he provides a feast for these people for 180 days. That's six months. Six months. He says he invited all of these people. It says the, the officials and his staff, the army of Persia and Media. Now, very unlikely that every soldier was invited to this because his army ranked between 3 to 7 million people. Herodotus mentioned that his infantry alone was 1.7 million people. But he invites all of these people, the military officials, the nobles and the officials of the province, and verse 4 tells us the meaning of all of what, what the author's wanting us to get. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom in the magnificent splendor of his majesty. A hundred and eighty days, six months of a massive political party. Why was he doing this? Well, see, his father, King Darius, died trying to overtake Athens. And he rose to the kingdom, and he said, uh, Herodotus actually has this. Again, this is what's so cool about this book is Herodotus, this Greek historian, writes about the Persian Wars. And this was a time called the Persian War Council. It was a 180-day military meeting. And they had no idea that the book of Esther was inspired by God. They had no idea this book was being written. And what's amazing is that those two stories line up identically as to what was taking place in Susa under the leadership of King Ahasuerus. And so they have this huge war council, this big meeting, 180 day long. And why is he doing this? There is a quote from Herodotus' Persian War History where he says, All of you have been gathered. Here is how you can please me most. My father, Darius, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but I know that I'm getting the accuracy right. My father, Darius, died in Athens, and I will not rest until I have burned that city down. How you can please me most is we will be going to war soon. When I call on you, you bring me the best of the best, and you show up. And if you show up, Gifts according to the luxury of my greatness will be provided to you. That's why he's doing a 180-day feast and showing just how lavishly wealthy and unimaginably powerful he is because he's bribing, in a a positive sense of the term, he needs an army to take on Greece. Greece. And so he wants them to know he will make good on his promise that if you will serve me in this army, I will make you rich. Now, we know that he actually could back this up. When Alexander the Great, a hundred years later, conquered Persia and went into the palace, he found like 500 million pounds of silver and gold. They said it was 2,700 tons of silver and gold, and then I think like 200 uh, tons of just pure gold coins. This man had it going. This is King Ahasuerus, and he has a 180-day feast and a war council for his entire empire. Then he goes on, the author wants us to grasp that, and then moving on, he says, At the end of this time, the king then held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from greatest to least. Now, I don't know about you, but the way I grew up is after Christmas, we ate a lot of Hamburger Helper. You wanna know why? Because mom and dad spent too much money trying to prove their love. Okay, nobody eats steak in January, okay? Maybe February, but we're, we're gonna have to just check and see how the budget's looking, okay? Not with King Ahasuerus, not when you're the most powerful man in the world. Nope, right after a 180-day feast, he throws a week-long party. Now, Let's just think about this. Beijing won the bid for the Olympics in July of 2015. The Olympics are currently going on or have just ended in China. They have 91 countries represented, 2,800 plus athletes. So imagining with all of their trainers coaches and people who travel with them maybe anywhere between three to five thousand people they had seven years to prepare the infrastructure the hotels the food the everything They had seven years to prepare for three to five thousand people to come for 20 days now including travel and flights let's give them a month they had seven years to prepare for three to five thousand people to come for a month. That's the Olympics from this year. In the third year of his reign, he hosted the entire empire over the course of six months. Do you have any idea the amount of infrastructure, the amount of lodging, the amount of food, the amount of wine, the amount of everything that took? And then at the end of the six months, he's like, now let's party for us probably a very smart political move to thank his city for all that they had just done to make the last six months possible and so he starts out and they goes into this incredibly detailed description of of all the things one of my favorite verses in all the bible it says mother of pearl i love that and when you when you read say like, mother of pearl and it's, it's great so i love this passage anyways So he goes into all of these details about this courtyard palace of King Ahasuerus. The only other time, Matt Winthian at Cornerstone is also preaching through the book of Esther. and I learned from him, the only other time there was this much description given to a palace or a courtyard is the tabernacle and the temple of God. And so the author is kind of using this poetic freedom to kind of clue us in that King Ahasuerus sees himself as a god that his palace rivals God's it's the only time in all of the Old Testament we have this much description of another location besides the temple or the tabernacle all of these things go on verse 7 says drinks were served in gold cups each with a different design Again, the author is not holding back any details. I, I hope that you're seeing what the author describes is what he wants us to see. Every gold cup with a different design, not the same. These weren't mass-produced. They ain't no Costco. These are all handmade. The only rule? There are no rules. Makes you think of that commercial where they say there's no rules, and the guy takes his shirt off. Put your shirt back on. There's one rule. But I don't know if you've seen that. You should YouTube. It's hilarious. As we look at the first scene in chapter 1, King Ahasuerus has unlimited power, or sorry, unlimited wealth and power beyond measure. This is what he wants us to see as we move into now scene 2. Verse 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigta, Abacta, Zetar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty, to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. Now the author adds a layer. We've already recognized that King Ahasuerus has unlimited wealth and power beyond measure, but now he wants us to know if you cross him, you will face his wrath. Now, the author does not give us good or bad on why Vashti denies him, but denies him she does. So let's not get into any harsh criticisms yet or applications let's let's remain remain buckled hands inside the car as we finish the story out and see what it is the author wants us to note here but what we do see is that on the 7th day of this party following the 180 day feast the king is feeling the wine which is a euphemism of a little bit intoxicated And now that he's drunk with all of his buddies, he says, bring in my smoking hot wife. I want to show her off. Queen Vashti, again, we do not know the motives here behind Vashti, but she says no. Now we see the author introduces us to Queen Vashti, the first one to not let the king get exactly what he wants. Did you catch the power again? He didn't send his assistant. He didn't knock on her door or shoot her a text himself. Nope, he sent not one, not two, but seven eunuchs. Now, I don't know if you know what a eunuch is, but it is a guy without guy hardware, either willingly or forcefully taken so that he can be trusted around the king's women without any funny business. So, these are seven men who have been castrated for their faithfulness to this king. He doesn't have just a regular assistant, he has seven castrated men. He rules with an unimaginable power. And he sends these seven eunuchs go get my wife. Bring her in here with a royal crown. Now, I don't know why it needs seven, Karen Jobes, the commentator mentions. She most likely had a royal carriage, which, which it would take seven men to carry her into the presence of the men that are at this dinner with King Ahasuerus. But she says, no, not going to happen. And so King Ahasuerus, who just threw a 180-day feasts for all of his military leaders and all the officials of his empire, now he's throwing another one, and again, he's gathered with the officials in his, and he's trying to show what is everything that King Ahasuerus is doing in this scene. He's trying to show that he has power, and he's trusted to go to war with Greece. And now his queen shames him in front of all the men that he wanted to show her off to. Now he's seen to be a man that maybe or maybe not can lead an army, but he certainly cannot command his queen. He goes into a tailspin. It says the king became furious and his anger burned within him. Okay? Now, what happens next? Let's, let's look. We're going to read the rest we're gonna read scene three, which is a large chunk of scripture, as they're doing this consultation. Ready, read with me in verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in the law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shetar, Admata, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media, who hear about the queen's act, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in contempt and more contempt and fury." The irrationality of these gooberheads is unbelievable. Verse 19: If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media that so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter the king Ahasuerus's presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree. The king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each man should be the master, or, and to each ethnic group in his own language, that every man should be the master of his house and speak in the language of his people. Will show her. Now, the author makes it painfully obvious to us that it is a terrifying thing to live under the rule of an irrational king with unlimited power or unlimited wealth and power beyond measure. Can you imagine? His wife doesn't come at his his queen. Notice it never once refers to him as a wife or her as a wife. It's always his queen. We'll see throughout. This was not a good marriage. Very politically charged. There are times as we go throughout the book that Queen Esther is not even summoned to come to the presence of the king for more than 30 days. So this. So don't think about a husband and wife here. Think of a king and a queen. Now they are married, and when there is a marriage application. But do you see the irrationality of this, and In the instability of this tyrannical king? His wife doesn't come. His queen doesn't come when he says, "You will. I want you here, and I want to show you off," and she refuses. And the first thing he does is he runs to the quote-unquote wisest men in the empire. And the greatest idea they can come up with is because your wife disrespected you, now my wife, who's likely at her feast, is going to disrespect me. Let's punish all the women. It's a terrifying thing to live under the rule Of a king with unlimited wealth and power beyond measure that is unstable and irrational. This is going to set the stage for the book of Esther. For there is a prime time in the, and later on in this book, there is a time where you will see the fear that possesses Queen Esther. Because of the irrationality, the instability, and the insane tyrannical power of this king. The author is wanting us to feel that hopelessness. For in one decision, Queen Vashti's life is forever changed. Banished from the presence of the king, that doesn't mean she's going home to mom and dad. That means she will be kept in a harem of women only to be brought to the king if he ever summoned her by name. And as he wrote as a royal decree, she will never see the king again. Her life now is as a slave and property to King Ahasuerus because she opposed him and shamed him. And now her her life will be forever miserable. That's what it's like to live under the rule of King Ahasuerus. Other historical accounts would say that if you did something wrong in his presence, or there isn't, I can't remember what it was, but there were some people who did something wrong in his presence, he didn't like them, and he had them all beheaded immediately. This was a terrifying country to live in. So what are we supposed to do with this church? How are we supposed to interpret Esther chapter 1? Let me share with you two bad ways and then some better ways. You ready? The first mistake you can make when you're interpreting the book of Esther is to go with the feminist approach. There's—as you can easily see in 2022, this book causes some visceral reactions. Even for the guys in here, we're like, oh, boy, that was a bad idea. Could have told you that wasn't going to work out. The war, one, of the, one of the bad ways you can try and interpret this book is to go the feminist approach. The feminist approach wants you to interpret this in light of the heroes and the heroines of the story— and so you say, Queen Vashti, that's the type of woman that we love. She said, stick it to the male patriarchy and to the male-dominated culture. Yeah, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, king. And so she is in the feminist approach, this Queen Vashti. Whoa! She's got it going. She ends up being locked into a place as a slave in his property for the rest of her life. So I don't know what victory she won by picketing for equality. Queen Esther acquiesces. She silently goes into the queen. She's given six months of pagan food and makeup uh, special treatment so that she looks good. They're bringing in all of these women to be prepared for King Ahasuerus. And Esther, she doesn't fight against this. She's not picketing. She's not lobbying against this. She actually goes in and pleases the king more than any other woman. And she gets picked as the queen. And so the feminist interpretation of this book, they hate Queen Esther. Because she went along with the male patriarchy. But it's actually Esther, because she was strategically silent, she's then able to subvert the entire power structure of the Persian Empire to achieve her goals for her people. And so in every way, she's actually a more powerful woman than Queen Vashti. But the author does not give us the inside scoop on the dialogues of these women. And the book of Esther is not about male versus female. It's about Jew versus pagan. That is the big story we will see unfold. It has nothing to do with gender. And so the feminist approach to this book is a poor one. And it leads you to interpreting this book in a way the author never wanted you to interpret it. So it's the first mistake you can make is to interpret this in light of a feminist approach. Agenda of equality. That's not what the author's going for. The second mistake you can do is go the exemplary route Looking throughout the main characters of the story to figure out who's a good example. Who's a bad example? Again, this leaves you not really knowing because if you were to do that you'd say boy I want to name my daughter Esther and I want her to be a strong powerful woman like Queen Esther. Well Queen Esther kind of stinks as a Jew she Takes the pagan uh, food and the beauty treatments that King David when or King Daniel when Daniel was taken as a slave, he said, "No, I will not eat that food. It is against my Jewish faith, and I will not do it." But Queen Vashti or Queen Esther, she takes it. She also takes the nice makeup too. She's given favor. She goes in and she pleases this pagan king. She becomes his queen. She hides her Jewish faith. From the king. She's not a good Jew to emulate. Mordecai, who also, as we'll see throughout the story, does some awesome stuff, but the thing that starts it all is his disrespect for a political leader in the empire of Persia causes a fight that brings the possible genocide to the people of the Jews. So, because of his pride, we see that possibly the entire Jewish nation could be exterminated because Mordecai doesn't want to respect the authority in his city. So don't go the exemplary route either, because none of them are worth following. Now, what is the author supposed to do with this? Or what are we supposed to do with what the author has said? The author does not give us whether or not Esther is conflicted by her decision. We don't see if Mordecai is conflicted. We don't see if Mordecai is regretful for his actions. And so because we are not let in on how we should think about the characters, we should just not make those assumptions unless we have something clearly revealed. Now, that doesn't mean that in narrative we don't know the the mindsets of of the characters. If you think about King David— King David's a man after God's own heart, but there's a narrative written about him. It says, now, in a time when the kings go to war, King David woke up from his nap and walked out to his rooftop and saw Bathsheba bathing. And this begins the fall of King David. And the narrator, the author, gives you something to shame him for. But that's not given to us in Esther And so let's be good Bible interpreters, and let's not make conclusions that the author isn't making. Now, there's wisdom principles that we can take from this. There's two of them here, and then there's one ultimate one that we have to notice in this text. Okay, the first one has to do with power and abuse of power. Clearly, this guy was running his empire as a tyrant. Now, we don't have to look far. If you go into any history, keeping with the Jewish history, you have Nazi Germany and Hitler. He had absolute authority and power, and he abused that to achieve his own powerful lusts and his desires. You look at communism spreading with, with, uh, with Stalin... You see these things taking place throughout our history, and and, and I think, honestly, we could say that we're seeing something of that sort take place in Canada right now. If you've been watching what's going on there, and then there's many of us who would say, hey, we're seeing some of that take place in our own country. You don't have to look far to see abuses of power. Now think about the Catholic Church. There's no one on earth who has possessed the power of the Catholic Church. You've also never seen another group of people with more headlines of power abuse and sexual abuse. You look within our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. You didn't know you're—if you didn't know you're in a Baptist church, you are. And so you look at our own denomination and you see power trips, cronyism, sexual abuse, an abuse of authority. You don't have to look far. One thing that we can take as a wisdom principle from the actions we see in this chapter is that none of us can handle absolute power. And whatever power you've been given in your job, in your life, in your community, it needs to be used to serve others in the name of Christ rather than to achieve your personal lusts. Another one we can look to is in marriage. See, God created a biblical and beautiful design within the home. And within that home, the husband has the role of self-sacrificial leadership, and the wife has the role of Christ-exalting submission. Both of them are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we see this beautiful design that as you look at it in Scripture, it's actually beautiful. But I remember a pastor that mentored me said that one time from the pulpit, his pastor said, Women, now ladies, don't shoot me. I'm saying this is a bad example. Women, biblical submission looks like having the coffee and the newspaper ready for your husband when he gets up in the morning. I hope that pastor quit preaching. That's horrible. That's a gross misuse of the design that God made. There is a design. There is an authority structure in every realm, parent, child, husband, wife, all of these different things, uh, government, citizen. There's so everything about life has authority, it has structure, and there's power. It's when we abuse that power, when we misuse the design and we misuse the authority that we see brokenness come in. And so I'm just gonna say a word because any guy with a brain could have said, dude, how she wear?" She should have just walked in there and be like, hey, sweetheart would like to, you know, I'm trying to convince everyone we should go to war. Remember that? Yep. Do you mind pausing for a few minutes this huge party that you're throwing and come make a meet and greet? She probably would have went, but if she didn't, he would have wisely went back and said, hey, you know what, guys? She's throwing a huge party for all of your wives. She sends her bests. Very reasonable response to how this could have, nope, nope. He runs to the councils and they do whatever they can to make sure she never gets a chance to disrespect him again. Husbands, let me just tell you something. If you think your wife isn't a good follower, it's probably because you suck at leading. Okay? (laughs) That's awesome. Her husband's not here. That's hilarious. That was good. All right. That'll be my clip for the the two-minute recap. (laughs) If you think your wife's the problem, it's because you suck at leading. But seriously, men... We have abused this power. We have abused this privilege so much that we see such an unhealthy ethic of marriage in our day today. Let's fix that. Never once did Christ abuse his power. And if we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, then we ought to start dying to ourselves quicker, faster, and better, and serving them. There's like five women on earth that if their husbands were to love them more, wake up praying for them, take care of them, cherish them, honor them, invest in their children, lead their family to love Jesus, lead their family to be physically healthy, mentally healthy, and emotionally healthy. There's like five women on earth that would be like, no, no, I still don't like that. But the rest of them be like, I can get behind that dude. This guy is my man, and I got your back. If we lead as Christ calls us to, we will see so much better. Marriages. It's another wisdom principle we can get from that. But the last one, in church, hear me on this. This is the most important. If every text of Scripture is inspired by God, then at some point it points to Christ. Maybe not explicitly in every line, but in its wholeness it points to Christ. So how do we get to Christ from King Ahasuerus? I'll tell you how I believe that we need to get to Christ. What we see in King Ahasuerus is that when his queen, when his bride rejected him and opposed him, He did everything in His power to banish her from His presence forever. But is Christ not a king? And does the Bible not refer to His people as His bride? but yet when when we reject christ's call to come follow me we reject that all of us the bible says romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory and so there was a king who delivered a command to us and we refused king ahasuerus had a bad command and, and or we don't know, but King Ahasuerus is in the wrong 100%. We see with his irrationality and how he responds. Christ is 100% right. We don't know if Queen Vashti needed to say no or not. We can't see. The author doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that we are 100% in the wrong when we deny Christ's invitation to come to His presence. And instead of going to the wise council of heaven and saying, what can we do to banish this bride from my presence forever? What did King Jesus do? King Jesus came to the earth. It's that Philippians 2 passage that we read. He emptied himself and he came. He became obedient amidst our disobedience and instead of banishing us from his presence he goes to the cross taking upon the wrath of God for our disobedience and in that death the wrath of God is poured out and because he offered himself willingly God exalted him and it is see as we look at King Ahasuerus he did everything wrong and that points us to King Jesus who does everything right you think that that cool marble uh, floor and those gold couches are nice? You try and rival with the tabernacle and the temple of God in the Old Testament, but the living temple is Christ himself who took on flesh, lived a sinless life, died in your place in my place, rose from the dead, and is seated at the throne. Where's King Ahasuerus? He's not sitting in that temple anymore. Why? Because he lost. Because his power runs out. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. His power never ends. His reign is eternal, and he is on the throne. You think that King Ahasuerus had a great palace, King Jesus' is better. You think a 180-day feast was a lot, the marriage supper feast of the Lamb, that Christ says, I will eat this meal with you in my kingdom forever. That lasts a lot longer than 180 days, church. If you have been redeemed with Christ, he is a better palace, he's a better king, and you've got a better feast on the way. King Jesus reigns supreme, and he calls us to come into his presence even when we don't deserve it. Amen. I'm going to ask Ashley to come forward as we begin to sing in response to what we've heard. If you're here today and you have surrendered to the lordship of King Jesus, you already know everything I just said. That he is better, that he is sufficient, that he promises in the book of Hebrews to never leave you nor forsake you. But maybe you're here today and you say, You know, up until my own, I've been the king or queen of my own life. And that that led me to denying King Jesus. And so maybe it's time for you to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. If you're here today and you're ready to surrender to the lordship of King Jesus in your life and begin following him faithfully and begin serving his kingdom and not your own. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. The Bible calls this repentance and belief. And what this means is that you're going to repent. The Bible word means to turn away. and save your soul. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're ready to quit trying to be your own king or queen, and you're ready to follow King Jesus, I want you to say this to God with me in prayer. King Jesus, I'm sorry. I've tried to be my own Lord, my own ruler. But I realize that made me deny you. Jesus, you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You were obedient to death amidst my disobedience. Instead of banishing me from your presence, you died on the cross to atone for my sins, to bring me into your presence forever. And so today, I surrender to you, King Jesus. Use me in your kingdom. I will faithfully follow you all of my days. If you prayed that prayer, please fill it out on your card. Or at the end, you'll be able to scan a QR code and submit that through your phone. But please tell one of us if you decided to surrender to King Jesus today. Father, I pray for our church as we sing and as we close in prayer. In just a minute, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just be grateful that you're a better king than anyone on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.